0: Hey everybody, I'm Dawn Tyler Watson, and you are listening to Talking Blues.
1: So, you've had, I know it's a crazy year, but you've had an amazing year.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was a good, it was, 2019 was fabulous and the beginning of 2020 was great too. Um, You know, I, 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 I'm definitely counting my blessings and if I start to feel sorry for myself about not being able to tour with so much, you know, um, attention on the album and on myself, then I start to think of, you know, hey, I'm six feet above ground today, that's pretty good, you know? with everything going on in the world it's yeah you know.
1: yeah for sure but i mean to to do so well at the maple blues awards for one thing and then also to win the juno for the blues album of the year is pretty phenomenal
0: yeah it's pretty cool we're very <laughs> we're very uh you know, excited about it and, and humbled and um yeah it's it's really
1: really amazing tell me about how music first came into your life
0: well um I was actually enrolled in a um in a uh, choir school when I was 10 years old. Uh I mean I went to church and people say you know they were raised in the church music came into their life in the church. You know, you think being a black woman that it's like, you know, Baptist, but I was raised Catholic in an all white community. <laughs> so it was folk, you know, it was it was it was Latin Latin hymns. And uh, yeah, so we sang at church. And then when I I went into grade five, I got accepted into a a choir school. So what that meant was music was a real strong part of our uh, curriculum. And I studied uh, violin. I learned violin and choir. And we we used to go and compete even at the Qantas Music Festival. So um, yeah, I guess that's when I kind of started you know formal study and then my brother picked up a guitar he's three years older than me so he must have been around 16 when he started playing you know singing in a rock band in high school and he shot taught me a few chords on the guitar and um and that was it I still only really know three or four chords on the guitar <laughs> but I've mastered the shit out of those um you know oh. so yeah and then, and that was it. I mean, I was always, though, ever since I was little, singing around the house. I was singing all the commercials from TV and radio, and I would just mimic everything. So much to my parents' dismay, I'd be singing or singing the same song over and over and
1: over. And it know? didn't matter what it was? I mean, was there any music that connected with you really early that's special to you?
0: Um. You know what? It's funny. The first tunes I started, used to, well, I mean, this is the early 70s. So, I mean, I was basically saying it was on the radio, but there was a lot of John Denver and Ann Murray and, you know, uh, Kenny Rogers. These were the tunes that I first learned because when I was playing those three chords, that's what I would play. <laughs> and so I resonated with, with country and that kind of popped genre of country anyway. And, um, you know, it wasn't until later, I, I mean, I started listening to Styx and Rush and, you know, uh, um, and then Zeppelin and, and stuff like that. But that was always kind of my brother's thing. And, and then, of course, there was the Michael Jackson's and the, the Osmonds. And, you know, basically, I was not picky. I, I sang everything that was on the hit parade.
1: <laughs> Were you passionate about the songs that you sang in the choir?
0: Um, I, yeah, because I love to sing. So I'm, and mean at some point as a teen, we started doing, uh, we had, I was part of the youth choir. So I guess around 12 or 13, I got to play in the youth choir, which was way more hip music than the than the Catholic hymns. And, uh, you know, we got to sing things like Hume by Yah and, you know, Morning Has Broken and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I, I mean, it, I just loved to sing. So I was happy singing anything. I think one of my first memories of like performing, cause I was a real class clown. I love to get people's attention. Um, much to my teacher's dismay they were trying to keep the attention to at the front of the room and i'd be at the back of the room trying to you know turn my eyelids inside out so i could get a laugh <laughs> and you know pull on people's ponytails and things and um i mean i remember one of my earliest memories i mu- it must have been grade two or three and I was on top of the garbage can in the playground, and I was singing, Jeremiah was a bullfrog, was a good friend of mine, and I had everybody around me, and they were clapping their hands and dancing, and I wonder if it was that young, I must have been, maybe I was a little older, I might have been like, I have to check out when that song came out, but, um, you know, I loved it, and I had like, I don't know, a popsicle in my hand or something as a microphone, and so I, I always loved attention. And um, I rem- one of the first performances I had, I remember was also even before I went to St. Peter's. So I must have been, you know, it was younger than 10. And it was uh, Anne Murray's song Snowbird. Wow. That was the first m- uh, performance that I ever remember.
1: Um, and And what yeah. was the reaction to that performance?
0: As I remember, quite good, you know. And my teachers always liked me. They hated giving me Cs, but they were forced to because my grades were so bad. You know? And that, that even followed me into university when I moved to Montreal. So, okay, so I would do really well in all my performance classes, but in in anything academic, I had a hard time focusing. You know? But you,
1: when you went to university in Montreal, you had decided you would follow music, correct?
0: Yeah, I actually followed my best friend here, and she's the one who she um she got accepted in Montreal at uh, Concordia here at the university right. and in composition, and um, she said, "Don, there's the jazz program, and I think you could get into it." And I, by this time, I mean I basically had skipped high school I skipped out of high school I was a bit of a dropout and uh well a lot of a dropout basically and I got into psychedelic drugs and drinking and hanging out with people and doing you know the wild crowd and 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 kind of went down the wrong road for a while so high school I never really finished and I said university they're not gonna let me in there she said no they will you're gonna apply as a mature student as immature as I was, they still accepted me as a mature student, and I finished. I got my degree, and uh, yeah, I got into Concordia. Followed my friend here, did my audition, and um, and I moved to Montreal. I guess it was in '88. So,
1: what were, musically where were you at before you went to Concordia? Like, I mean, how much experience did you have, other than strumming your acoustic guitar and learning your three chords? Were you playing around mm-hmm. a lot?
0: No, I had, you know, by this time, like I said, I was partying a lot in my in my teenhood and you know, young adult, young twenties, early twenties, and I I had I started one or two bands, but I tended to get kicked out because I was partying too much. I was not able to take it seriously. You know, I had a substance abuse problem at, at those ages. And, um, you know, from, from a young age, from 14, 15, I was, you know, I went on to the dark side, as they say. And it's only when I got out of that, um, I mean, I came to Montreal and and one thing led to another and I was able to leave all that behind. But basically what, you know, I'd get, I I remember started an all girl car uh, band. Well, I didn't start it. I was part of uh, three girls and it was called Uptown in the early eighties. And um, we did a few gigs and we rehearsed and it was great, but I wasn't, I wasn't reliable. Um, So, you know, I did that, but I was never really able to take music seriously. I mean, the, the, how i described that period in my life was basically any bar where there was a you know a band playing i'd kind of muscle my way onto stage Uh, onto the stage and sing summertime and people would pat me on the back and tell me how amazing it was and that I should go on star search. And (laughs) I was like, it would seem to be the only thing. And at that point it's kind of sad because it was the only thing I really felt was any good about me was the fact that I could sing. And I loved getting that, that um, praise and you know, that, that, that pat on the back meant so much to me, but I was, you know, half, tanked half the time when I get on stage and, uh, and I, so I never really made anything of it. That's, you know, back then I met, that's when I met Jeff Healy actually, he's playing at the fire hall in London, Ontario. And there was a gang of us in London, Ontario that used to hang out and party and make music, but music was never really serious to me at that time. And I, I really believe my friend Sheila, she saved my life by, by bringing me here to Montreal.
1: But I, okay. So when you're actually applying for a jazz program, because I, I think of music and I think of jazz and classical being very serious. So mm-hmm. to apply for a jazz, to get into a jazz program, I mean, obviously you had to have some talent and um, some mm-hmm. skills. Um, where was your jazz chops at that point?
0: Uh, basically listening to a uh, cassette of the top, you know, um, hits of, there were some people on there, was Sarah Bonn on there, Ella Fitzgerald. Um, I can't even remember who was else was on there at the time, but I had a little bit of exposure to it. Um, and when I went to apply, I did the audition. I sang a classical tune. I sang a, a pop tune. I think they asked us to perform three songs. And so one was a classical one was asked to be, was a, you know, I don't remember a 19th century piece or something. Um, One choice, one song of your choice and one jazz song. And at that point when they did, they asked me, which, because I have a very strong voice. So they said, would you be interested in the opera program? And I was like, "Mm, no, (laughs) (laughs) no. although I since I love opera and, you know, it was really flattering to be asked that and just, you know, told me I had a strong voice, but they accepted me. And, um, um, that's when I started learning more about jazz. I mean, till that, I mean, jazz is of course, blues is the root of everything, Right? you know, um, it all comes out of that Western music. All comes out of blues and out of, uh, you know, Negro spirituals and work songs and, and that, that very, very early, um, you know struggle and all that this is where it all comes out from but I got interested in in jazz in school
1: wow um and then well tell me about that audition how did you feel about doing it and what was that experience like
0: well, uh, my girlfriend uh, played piano for me, and she tried to prep me for it, which means we did a little bit of theory, theory and I was trying to remember the theory I'd learned in school when I was in, in grade school, because, you know, I'd learned uh, some theory, and I could read music, uh, playing violin, but I needed refresher courses, and again, I was still partying at this, it was quite it was quite a handful. Uh, it's amazing I made it there. I made it on time, and you know I really do believe in a, in a divine path for each of us. And and it's it's you know by grace that I ended up getting into that 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 audition. I remember they asked me, you know, who wrote that particular piece, and I was like, I don't know, but Barbara Streisand sang it. You know, Streisand was another influence on me, <laughs> their early influence. And and Sheila still laughs to this day that you know like. It's just an academic question that I I had no clue, and they accepted me in. And, and, and you know, my teachers were amazing. They were amazing, and it was after um, let's see, eighty-eight, nine, ten. So three years or four years into that, I finally you know uh, was able to get serious, and and I quit drinking, and uh, my life changed. And my my life. Changed.
1: Can I ask you how that happened? Like, what what made you decide to get serious, and how? Uh, obviously, if you like partying. It might, was it difficult to stop partying
0: for me it was um you know it wasn't the first time I had tried and um for me it was I really I had to go to rehab I felt uh at that point in my life I was really completely powerless I had tried I was still into drugs although I wasn't doing it daily as when I was a teen and uh, you know you know, basically uh, on the street. I mean, I was a runaway. So from a young age and uh, did a lot of couch surfing and hanging out with the wrong crowd. But um, I had gotten my life together at some point when I came, you know, before I auditioned for Montreal, I was I, you know, I got a great job working in a bar where there was a lot of drugs and alcohol. So that was you know, it was great for me. I started paying rent, had an apartment, you know, was starting to get things together. But then when I went to school and I start, I saw things starting to open up for me. So I got a lot of uh, encouragement at school from my teachers. I was performing and my performances again, that, ad, you know, that adulation or that, that that affirmation that i needed that i craved so much i was getting i also started acting i was doing theater at university as well as a minor in theater and and i, I got an acting agent and i was getting parts in, in films small parts in films and commercials and and photo shoots and things like that so you know i had my first band things were coming together and yet i was still falling apart i i wasn't like i said using or drinking it every every day, but I was at every opportunity. And there becomes a time, I think, for someone who has a real substance abuse problem, like someone who's an alcoholic, as I was, um, you know, where you have to, where you say, you realize you're leading a double life, and, you know, you can't keep living this way, but you don't know how to live other otherwise. And I had to hit a real serious bottom. And I turned to, you know, I, to get help for that and i I went to a rehab and i I sought help for that and and I' um, you know happy to say I'm still drug and alcohol free uh almost thirty years later you know, and my life changed from then on. I was able to focus on music and to be- and that
1: was the focus that that you thought this is what I want to do for sure
0: yes yeah it was it was really an affirmation because I remember times you know when I was still in London I was like. Praying, I was like, okay, God, if you can just help me to sing, you know, if I could be a singer, then maybe I wouldn't keep doing these things that I was doing to myself, you know, that I'm, you know, I was living in a lot of uh, hopelessness and helplessness. And then that I, you know, I'd say I'm going to quit. And the next day I would wake up and I'd be okay for a day or two. And then I'd forget you know, I'd forget how bad it was. And, and that's the nature of addiction and alcoholism is, you know, like we, we just have a heart, you know, given sufficient reason, a real alcoholic cannot quit entirely or modify. I couldn't quit entirely and I couldn't modify my drinking. Believe me, I tried or my drugging and I tried for years. So when I found a solution, um, you know, I, I was able to, uh, thank God I was able to really actually focus on, on music and I was in a relationship uh, at that time uh, and, and with someone who really loved me and you know um, my life took off from then
1: uh, So when you said okay this is what I'm going to do, I'm going to pursue music, did you have an idea what that would mean and what you were striving for?
0: No No, I just wanted to sing I always just wanted to sing I feel, you know Ever since I was a little kid, I just loved singing. I remember getting my first uh, paychecker. One of my first gigs in, in university, before I quit drinking, was called Two Thirds Scotch. <laughs> You know, we just we we would work, uh, you know, at a little club, and we'd be lucky if we went home with any money. But I remember our first gig it was up in a place called Mor- in Morin Heights at the Commons, this really cool rock club up north of Montreal. And uh, I remember when they came to the, me at the end of the night and gave me fifty dollars, and I was like, Oh my God, we get paid too! You know, like. <laughs> And that 50 bucks. I was like, "Wow. This was such a great night. I got to do what I love. I sang. People were clapping, dancing, and, you know, partying and and then I actually had got 50 bucks in my pocket. Went straight to the dealer, but, you know, at the time it was great. I was like, "Woo." So, um, you know, I always just I always just kept doing what I I love. I, I love singing. I mean, you can't pay me. Uh, I will sing for free. It's I always say this it's like I feel blessed now to have a career and to do what I love to do the most and to be able to make a living with it. I'm a very blessed individual and I, this is all covid outside of covid cuz I'm not doing it anymore, anyway. yeah, yeah. you know, obviously everything's been on 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 hold but you know I consider myself really blessed but you don't pay me to get on stage and sing and make people smile. You pay me to deal with, you know, booking and websites and social media and writing songs and you know not even the writing songs but you know the the all the upkeep all the stuff it takes to have a career because if I'd have known it was this much work to have a career I maybe would have just you know kept busking on the street or something yeah so
1: that's another thing that you did was busk on the street tell me about that experience and what that taught you
0: um you know I loved I loved doing that. Um I did that when I was in university and it was a way to make extra money and I I saw it also as a challenge. I have a strong voice so I could sing loud over traffic and I saw it as a tra- I saw it as a challenge to make people stop. So I'd see somebody coming down the street and they'd be all busy and I'd like I'd will them to look at me because you know people sometimes they don't want to look. And anybody on the street, you're asking for money, or some people are just like that, they'll keep their head down. So I would sing extra hard and extra loud. And I would do something really impressive to get that person to look up, you know, whether it be a little old lady, or, you know, some businessman on his cell phone, or whatever, you know, like, and, and so I, I tried to learn to connect to people. And then when they'd look at me, I'd smile. And I, I I find busking really gave me a lot of experience in in dealing with people and in in singing to people close up, because to me, it's really all about the connection. It's really about creating a moment. I sing the song, but I don't create that moment on my own. The listener. You know, the person when we're talking about live music, it's the audience member, it's the person, it's you receiving the song that creates this and and giving me back the energy of your feelings and your, your vibration that feeds that loop and creates that moment that is unforgettable. I really believe that. And it's not something I do on my own. and, And it's not about being a great singer. It's really about just being open to the power of music. The power of the song. So I've
1: seen you perform in a club. I've seen you perform in in a huge festival. Is the approach of performance different between busking, club, festival, and or wherever you are?
0: I would say yes in costume changes and things like that. Right. It's really, for me, it's really different. I also perform in seniors' residences. Like I've been doing that for, you know, 25 plus years. Um, I go into the residences and I, I sing for them and we sing do sing along stuff. And what's different is, I mean, they're closer to me. They, you know, they don't care that I want a Juno. They just care that I'm making them smile, you know? So the difference is, Yeah, definitely a small stage. You don't wear, I don't wear the same thing I would wear on a big stage. But other than that, and also using the space that you have. Right. You know, I don't stand still and sing, I move around. I try to, you know, I try to maximize the space that I have so as to be able to reach. The most amount of people, so as a big festival, you got to make sure you're singing to the people on on in the aisles as well, on the sides, on your extremes. Can't just sing straight to the front. The same goes for a theater where you have tears. You got to look up every now and then. You got to look to the right, to the left. Make sure you don't exclude people. But other than that, I think to me it's the same uh, experience. That and I mean, if I'm singing a cappella, you know, like I'm not a cappella, but I go as I said with seniors. And sometimes I'm playing guitar and I will like, I, I move around, I move in front of people. And obviously, this has all changed with COVID now. And I did one of my first gigs, I had to wear a mask and a face shield. So it's, it's really hard, but it is doable. To still create that connection with your eyes and with your intention, but you know I will I will go up in front of somebody and really you're dealing with people who have cognitive issues oftentimes or are not responsive, who can't make a sentence or who can't speak, and I truly believe they still feel the music and music moves and affects different parts of the brain. It's been proven, so I still try to make that connection. Sometimes I will notice someone is really sensitive and they might block their ears because I'm singing too loud. Then I will adjust, and I'll sing quieter whenever I go near that person. Other people are like those was a lady who was deaf the, deaf the other day, and she kept putting her hand out so she could touch my guitar, so you know every few minutes I'd go over and let her put her hand on my guitar so she could feel the vibrations and she would she would sign thank you you know it's, it's really amazing
1: um that is amazing that I- what, what, what made you start to do that, and what do you get out of doing that?
0: Wow. Well, goosebumps just talking about something like that. It's so fulfilling and it's so, it's so, um, you know, um, it just, it gives you purpose. You know, it's not about, for me becoming a star or being the best or, you know, even winning awards is really, really subjective. It depends on who's on the board and just so much of it is the luck of the draw. It doesn't make me any better than any other artist that I'm in that category with, you know, like the IBCs, the international blues challenge or stuff. It's just, I truly, again, believe in this path and I'm on it, but so, you know, it's, it's, um, working with seniors is, is so enriching because there is no glory in it. It's really, it's just human contact. And when you have a gift and I've been given this gift and I know it to be a gift now, and yeah, I've done my best to nurture it and to, um, to, you know, make it as good as it can be. I mean, you know, I to try to preserve it and, and make and, and and help it to be bigger and better and, you know, greater to make it uh, serve to serve the world, which I think all gifts are, is to serve. You know, I'm being given this, not so I can sit at home and sing by myself. And I teach that to my students who are shy.
1: When you, when you decided that you wanted to become follow this path to being a musician after you graduated mm-hmm. and thought, okay, I'm going to clean my life up and and I'm going to do this, um, at what point did you realize that it was a gift? And at what, what point did you think, oh, you know, this – this is such an amazing gift to have because I don't know if everybody looks at it that way.
0: Really, eh? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I guess. No, no, I guess people don't. Yeah, no, they wouldn't. I—that's I, a silly thing to say because, yeah, I mean, people if, if don't believe in it. If you if you believe something's a gift, you got to believe there's a giver, right? Yeah. So I suppose some people may not think that. They just think, gee, you know, it's it's a skill set for sure. So it's a skill set, whatever you want to call it. Um, that's not so important. I mean, at what point did I realize that it was a gift? I, I always kind of knew it, I think, um, when I could see people's reactions. Um, but more so, when I was in school, before I quit drinking, um, I could see that I was killing this thing. I could see. I remember one experience in particular. I mean, there was a gospel choir at, uh, at Concordia and I had sang a, a solo piece with the choir and it was uh, His Eyes on the Sparrow. It was beautiful, mm. beautiful. Hymn. And um, backstage, this little old lady had come to me and she had taken my hand in hers and she had tears in her eyes and she had said, you are an angel from God. It's so beautiful what you did. Apparently what I had done and sang that song at that moment in her life was something she really needed and she can connect it to. And I've had so many countless, you know, situations since, but this is one of the first times I could remember that affected me so profoundly where I went, you know, gee, thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. But inside I was dying because I knew I was up in the bar knocking back Jack Daniels in order to be able to go on stage that night. Because I'd been high on cocaine all day, and I knew that I was killing that gift that I'd been given. I not not killing it. Let me rephrase that. I was living to like an inch of the the unlimited potential that this gift had. Obviously, it had potential. If this woman's sitting here and she's looking at me with all this love and adoration and emotion, and I what I felt it was the shittiest performance. The only way I could get on stage was to get uh, get a buzz on, to be able to, you know, to be able to be balanced because otherwise I was too paranoid or too, you know. Um, and, and knowing that, that I was not giving my best or doing my best was like so, uh, was such a shock to me. And, and it's then, it's a, a moment when I really remember um, that I try to keep fresh in my memory because it was a moment when I said, I got to stop doing this. I can't keep living like that. I mean, I was—I became suicidal. The shame and guilt of doing that to yourself when you've got this power, which, you know, music is a power. It's a powerful gift.
1: For sure. I wonder, you know? so when you cleaned up, and I don't know how long of a process that is, but when you went back on stage clean and sober, what was that like? Because like, I, I would imagine most of the times when you performed, you probably weren't. Sober. No. <laughs> so what was it like to <laughs> Not be... Not too much.
0: Before that. Yeah. It, it was terrifying in the beginning. You know, I thought... I mean, they don't call it liquid courage for nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? It was scary in the beginning. But... Um, but i also believed in my talent i had had a lot of support uh i mean my teachers you know i had my my voice teacher jerry brown all my the angels and the people that were in my life at that time supported me through it and my graduation recital in 94 when i was like not even 2 years sober was the first time the oscar peterson hall had ever been sold out it was a free concert mind you but Nobody ever did grad recitals where they sold out the auditorium of like, I don't know, was it like 600 people in that place? Maybe, you know, that's crazy. But I was able to, um, and I say me, but I had, of course, it's just like this Juno. I mean, I didn't win the Juno. i'm part of a team of all the right pieces that were put into place in the puzzle to make it fit together in such a way that we created this piece of art that resonated with the Juno board with the, the academy you mm-hmm. know who chooses this, and and it resonated with the fans and resonated with the individuals so you know I, it, we i was able to 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 do this this um this um co- um grad recital and it was a big show we had we had blues, we had gospel, we had jazz, we had theater. We had a dancer at one point. With you know, like I got everybody involved in the school. The te- people were all talking about it. it. Was incredible this production. I don't know how the hell I did it. I still to this day don't know. But feeling feeling that sense of accomplishment, you know, it's it and and being knowing. And this is the thing that has kept me going, no matter what. Even now, as COVID, you know, threatens my livelihood and says, okay, time to get a job, washing dishes done, you know, it's like, even now, I know that I'm exactly where I'm meant to be doing what I'm meant to be doing. I have no doubt that I was given this gift. And so when you say, when I chose music career, I never did. I just did the next right thing. I just followed my career. I just went along with it and, and things opened up for me and it's been that way ever since. And I struggle with, with um, artists and people who I know who are out there who are fabulous, amazing artists don't have near the notoriety I have. And they stay apply themselves and spend like two three hours a day doing their website doing their socials doing their and me i'm like oh man i should be more organized i should get this (laughs) together and do that oh my god and i don't have a video yet and how you know i need a record label i should have this and i should have it's crazy i'm telling you (laughs) it it's really something because and yet here i am with the freaking juno it's like wow
1: well not only the juno but i mean the maple blues award and also not too long ago you you won the international blues challenge i mean these are all yeah yeah. these are all pretty impressive things to accomplish and i've known you for i've seen you for many years was there i would presume that it hasn't always been easy i mean like now like you're you've 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 seen all these rewards but when you got out of school and said this is a path i'm going to I would imagine that there must have been some times when it probably wasn't easy. Mm -hmm. How did Um, you deal with that?
0: I just persevered, I think. I was able to give up my waitering job uh, shortly after I graduated. So, um, and music became my full-time, you know, profession. But you also did acting too, right? Yes, I did some acting as well. Um, but at one point shortly after graduating, my acting agent said, okay, we need new headshots. We need this. We need to, you know, you got to pay your dues for this and that and the other thing. And at that point I was starting to gig more and more and I had a wedding band. I was playing in a wedding band and making pretty good money. Um, highly recommend for any artist, any newbie listening out there, join a wedding band. You'll learn a lot of music material, you know, <laughs> like I felt that there was another experience that Improved me as a mus- musically mm-hmm. and, and in, in performing as well. So, you know, I was making money and I was able to give up my waitering job, but, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I feel that again, struggling came more from choices in, uh, you know in material i mean sh- okay so after that i mean how i started in the blues was there was a small label in in montreal here who was putting together a blues compilation and and brian slack had been heard about me through someone else, and they had heard about me, and they were putting us together um, to do this compilation. They came down to see me, and they asked me, would you put a couple songs on this compilation? And I said, sure. And I was going to record a couple of covers, you know, standard blues tunes, B.B. King or Etta James or whatever, and I decided to write a couple tunes. And until then, I hadn't really I was not, a, I'd written songs, but I'd never really performed them. I was always shy to perform my songs. I felt they were too personal. And um, so I wrote these two songs. They ended up on the compilation. That launched, literally launched my blues career because the following year, 1998, we were on the, uh, the, the blues, LaBasse blues stage at the, you know, International Jazz Festival, one of the biggest yeah. festivals in the world performing and here I was on the middle of the catwalk and I'll never forget the moment when it hit me I looked out into the face the sea of you know 8,000 10,000 screaming fans and I'm like I guess I am a blues singer now So I always say, I never chose the blues. The blues chose me. And we were able to start that band that we used in the studio, became the Don Tyler Blues Project, which is the one that you uh, videotaped yeah. so many moons ago. And, um, you know, the, 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 that's who we became. Uh, that band started, started touring from ninety. the album came out in 97 till 2001. We were touring on the strength of three songs on a blues compilation. I still didn't even have an album it was only 2001 i came out with my first solo album the don tyler blues project album ten dollar dress and you know so that was it i mean struggles maybe it's hard for me to really talk about them other than um because i don't feel they were uh you know i don't focus on the struggles i focus on the on the the journey and the achievements and just you know like i said one foot in front of the other well
1: i guess the other thing and i don't know if this is Ever worked against you, but, like you said, you loved all kinds of music and you also played all kinds of music. I remember going to Montreal once and seeing you uh, singing jazz. Um, I forgot mm. George's, uh, was it called George's? The jazz club.
0: George's place. It was um, probably Charlie Biddle's place. It's called the House of Jazz. Yeah. It changed its name from Biddle's to um, the house of jazz or it might have been um, which sadly closed down uh, last month during because of the pandemic. Um, but the upstairs jazz bar is another place um, and that's Joel's place that's yeah, okay. I still do do jazz okay
1: so and not, not only jazz but I know you've done lots of different kinds of music and I can see having having the talent to do different genres so that you can sing with a wedding band and play jazz and play blues. I can see the advantage of that. Could that also work against you in that trying to define who you are?
0: That's a good question. I um I feel that it did at one point in my career, right around the time my album came out, my first one in two thousand one, because. Um, you know, as I said, we were able to tour and and on the strength of these three tunes, and and then it was the people around me, the record label, and um, and Brian, who was managing me at the time, said, you know, now you've got to do a blues album to solidify your 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 place. Right. You know, like got these fans. I had been nominated uh, for uh, th- maybe three Maple Blues Awards. Like, you know, right away, as soon as I hit the scene, I started getting nominations in the Blues Maple Blues, um, and so. You know, um, and we were touring a lot. So at that point, the question became, you know, we need more blues music and you can't put all these ballads and the country feels and jazzy feels. And and I really, I, I rebelled against it. I hated that. But $10 Dress, my first album, and even last, the last one I did, Jawbreaker, are quite eclectic the feeling is eclectic on them. Jawbreaker less so because I worked with a producer, Francois Tifo, um, who also worked on The Mad Love, the last album, and um, helped me to put my sound into more of a, with the Ben Racine band, of course, whom I'm working with now, they helped me to, to make it a lot more homogenous. Right. But that said, my songwriting and my style is still very... Uh, I I love to do country I love to do you know I love to draw from all these elements and the blues fans in 2001 when when that album came out they it was nominated for uh album of the year and maple blues awards and it was embraced by the blues community and so that kind of gave me the stamp of approval okay the blues is big enough to be able to hold to contain all those styles right You find the jazz, you find the rock, you find the funk, the soul, the folk, the roots, you know, Uh, it's all in there. So that's been my kind of motto. I, I stopped trying to be a square peg fitting in a round hole and I just kept doing my thing. And when we won in 2017, the International Blues Challenge, I think that was a real pivotal point for me as an artist, because here we were, um, you know, at the Orpheum Theater, 260 bands from all over the world competing in Memphis. And um, I'm in, the, in the, 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 the finals, and I'm there with seven white guys from Quebec. You know, <laughs> this is my band, the Ben Ristney band. Awesome, incredible musician, and we're doing our thing. You know, and and going and competing in the blues, um, in the blues challenge. I mean, you get a lot of advice. People saying, you know, blues content, blues content, it's got to be blues content. You know, like, but by this time, I had, you know, we put out Jawbreaker and stuff was bluesy enough sounding that I stuck to my, you know, my truth. And, and when they announced that we won, I literally was totally shocked and super proud. And it was that moment that I really felt, okay, you're all right. You know, you really are a blues artist and you really are. It was like an affirmation for me, a huge affirmation. We beat out all these, you know, these, these, you know, South centric, Bands from Mississippi and New Orleans and Chicago. I mean, from Quebec, we beat them. It still shocks the shit out of me. I'm like, woo! And it's still the most proudest moment
1: of my career. Really?
0: It's still, absolutely. Wow.
1: I mean, it's, I it's, a, a, it's I an amazing accomplishment for sure.
0: Yeah. And it happened, um, you know, it happened three months to the day after open heart surgery.
1: Which is crazy. And I think they told you that you yeah. couldn't, you, couldn't, you shouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be able to do anything for like six months or something, right?
0: They said three to six months. And I heard three months. And I was like, well, I'm going to Memphis, so I better get better fast. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I did. I mean, you know, this is like, uh, and to the day, three months, we won the competition. So we had already been down there for a week and competing. And uh, I mean, it was you talk about challenges. Yeah, it was a challenge. I was tired. I was, you know, but I was excited. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. I was trying still to take good care of myself and eat well and rest and not be, but I was getting on stage and and singing the, the, you know, singing my butt off, you know, with every ounce of energy that I had in me post-surgery and and so it was it was just beautiful it was really amazing that we were able to to so for me as a personal accomplishment and also as a as a representative canada a (laughs) because it's an international competition and i think nobody ever non-us ever won it and i was only the second woman in 25 years to win the thing so there were all these elements that I was proud of, being a, a non-American winning it and being a a female winning this. It, I mean, and and then you know, beating out all these other bands, it was it's really still a yeah, a big huge sense of you know, source of pride for
1: me. The health problem you, you you had, that must have been scary as hell.
0: Yep, it was. Um, I was mostly in shock. It happened really quickly it wasn't like I always knew I had heart disease. This kind of snuck up on me. Um, And I, you know, I've been having a little bit of elevated blood pressure. I went to see my doctor. He had made an appointment for a a cardiologist. I told him I was also having palpitations, irregular heartbeat, you know, fluttering in my chest, but it was pretty mild. And I was sure you know, I just put out a record, a uh, jawbreaker, you know, my, um, my I had just gone through a really tumultuous breakup of a marriage, a very short-lived marriage, and a, a lot of stress and mental health issues involved with that. You know, um, it ha- it ended really suddenly, so there was a lot of stress going on in my life. And, and I was sure they were going to tell, he was going to tell me, look, you got to take, you know, uh, you got to reduce caffeine intake and you got to start meditating. Anyway, I I had the appointment for the Thursday. They made it quite quickly for the um, cardiologist. And on the tuesday i was walking my dog and i felt this fluttering again and i had spoken to a friend of mine who had had a heart attack and she said "Look, Don, if you ever have any of symptoms you should go straight to emergency so i actually had nothing that day which is rare i had no appointments no nothing and i thought you know i'd grab a book i'm gonna grab my ipad i'm gonna go to the emergency and i did and they took me in and long story short they decided to keep me overnight and do an angiogram the next morning and when they went in and that's when they shoot the die in, they came to me that it, so that's wednesday evening afternoon after end of day and he said what do you doing friday i said why he says well we're gonna send the plumber in to fix your pipes you're like 93 percent blocked and 90 you know 92 percent blocked here you have four pipes blocked and i said what yeah <laughs> And it happened that quickly. I had no time to think about it. So from, you know, Tuesday, so when I got that news Wednesday afternoon and Friday morning, I went in for the surgery. It was, I was still in shock that this was happening. So it, it happened so suddenly that I, um, you know, I didn't, ex- I didn't have time to absorb, you know, much, uh, I came out of it and I just focused on getting better to get to the, uh, to get, to get to Memphis.
1: Wow. Yeah, um, it freaks me out. What did that experience teach you?
0: Um, well, the whole experience of uh, you mean to eat better and take better care of myself, mm-hmm. <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean the the whole experience of it, of being. Um, I'm not sure what you mean by uh, which experience. Sorry, the
1: experience of just having. The shock of to being somebody telling you that we're going to have to do surgery and you have an issue with your heart. like.
0: Well, it taught me, it, it basically taught me that I have no power over anything and you never know. And I think we're all realizing that from day to day, one day to the next, what's going to happen, mm-hmm. that we think we have any control over tomorrow is complete, uh, you know, uh, uh, lunacy, it's really not lunacy, but it's it's a delusion. We have no control. So, you know, it just taught me once again how powerless I am and that, you know, I just have to uh I have to ride the waves of my life and you know, who knows what's gonna happen. We can plan for tomorrow, but we really don't know. And again, I just walk the path. You yeah. Know? I just walk the path, do the next right thing, get better, pick up the guitar. I started singing again about uh ten days after getting out and well, a week after getting out of the hospital. I was in the hospital for a week and then somebody brought me my guitar. I started singing again and <laughs> it's funny because uh um about a year this whole year was um you know, this is the divorce and everything happened in the fall. I had started having from then I had started having issues with my voice. I wasn't able to sustain notes the same way. I was having some strange issues.
1: Is that related and to the surgery?
0: Well, this is what nobody knew. I was seeing my, my ENT, my specialist, they, she sent me to an allergist. They were sending me for chest x-rays. The allergist is telling me I got to get rid of my dog. I can't sleep with my dog in the bed anymore. I said, the husband just left. Are you kidding me? You know? Um, And all this, no one knew what was wrong, but I just knew I had to change my technique. So for the last like eight months I had shifted the way I was singing And then when I got out of the uh, surgery and I got my guitar, I started singing. And I swear to God, I I again get goosebumps because I had, I started singing and I realized that because of the surgery, my voice came back, that it was connected to my heart. And even my ENT had no idea that that could happen because of this particular problem I was having. It wasn't, I wasn't having like shortness of breath, but I couldn't, you know, I couldn't sing softly and I couldn't sustain a note the same way. It really affected me, but nobody knew that was my heart. No one even thought about that and list of all me. So it was like a diamond studded platinum coated, you know, silver lining to this big cloud. And it was like, wow. And so when I went down to Memphis, I went down with a better voice than I actually would have had if I had not had the surgery. Wow. So when
1: when that person brought your guitar and you started playing it 10 days later, was your voice back at that moment?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, obviously I had stitches in my sternum, so breathing was difficult. But the fact that I could sing quietly, I remember I started singing Hallelujah because I had been working on it on the guitar before COVID, before before the surgery. And uh, I started playing a little bit and I was like, oh my God, I can sing again softly and I actually I don't get emotional I had tears came out of my tears came out of my eyes I was like oh man what a gift what a gift to have this back because I had thought well it's age I'm getting older. Uh, It's just age. This is what happens. I mean, I have to start learning to sing with my voice differently. But it was extremely frustrating. That was a challenging time in my life when my voice started shifting and changing. And even the musicians around me, I'm like, don't you notice? They're like, no. But then when I mentioned it to my piano player and I said, listen, and I pointed it out, he went, yeah, you know what? Now I notice you're right because I can hide it. You know, I I learned to sing around it. I picked up different technique, but I didn't have the sensitivity that I had before. And it was sad. It was really sad. So what a beautiful gift to get that back.
1: For sure. And to win the IBC and to go on and do another great album and then get the recognition you've gotten. Mm-hmm. it's pretty sweet
0: it's been a beautiful ride it's really really sweet
1: yeah. so when you go through something like that with your health and and people obviously say you know you got to reduce your stress you've just gone through a breakup you now you're going through rehab how do you how do you control that like how do you control stress when when there's obviously issues and and pressures
0: um for me I I started meditating, I started listening to some meditations. At night I started listening to healing meditations as soon as I got in as soon as I had my surgery. I couldn't sleep at night. Uh there was pain obviously like Basically, they crack you open like a, a Thanksgiving turkey. You know, nice. like they, you know, cut, saw you right down the middle, man. It's not fun, extremely painful, and uncomfortable to sleep. And so, I was listening to meditations at night. Um, you know, people like Louise Hay and Wayne Dyer, and 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 you know, the spiritual. You know, my life is a is. A, I believe life is a spiritual journey, and so I just focused more on my spirituality. I focused more on going within, um, more on letting go, and and trusting that that there is some kind of divine purpose, and and that there's a higher power in 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 charge of my path and my life. And I just need to just deal with this one day. I just have to get through today. And I've really learned that with COVID you know, now and, um, worrying about the fall when my money starts to run out or when the, the CERB starts to run out or what am I going to do? I'm like, I I can plan, I can look at ideas, but I also truly feel, I trust that things are going to be okay. You know, and I can't get into. But what if they're not? Because then I'm not living in the day. That's the whole, uh, you know, the old story about you know you can if you got one foot in yesterday, regretting yesterday, and you got another foot in tomorrow, worrying about it, then you're shitting all over today. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I can swear in your podcast, Michael. Kind of, kind of late (laughs) now, isn't it? (laughs) You can beat me out, (laughs) but basically, it's true. If you're worrying about yesterday or tomorrow, these are two moments that are gone. They're, they're may never come, and it's gone. Yeah. What is the point? I focus on today and what I can do today, and I just be grateful that I'm, like I said, another day above ground.
1: I'm sure. You know? well, this is. I mean, that's this. It's quite a journey that you've taken. Mm. You know, like it's, it's an amazing ride that you've you've gone through, and and luckily you've had your downs, but you've had many ups, and good for you for that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm blessed. Um, <clears throat> Somebody up there likes me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, and so they should. Um, Don, I I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I, you know, we've we've passed, crossed paths a number of times, but I've never really sat down and talked to you for a long period of time. So it's it's mm-hmm. it's great to get to know you a little bit.
0: Yeah, you too. Te- you know what? You're super easy to talk to. <laughs> and um, thank you. I mean, there there are you know, it's been really really a pleasure speaking with you and um good luck with your with your podcast
1: thanks and and thanks again for doing this
0: you're very welcome